This episode is being sponsored by Balsy. Hey listeners, your love isn't boring, so why should a gift to the guy in your life be? And what better than a gift that's great for him and you? Show your love this V-Day with the heart-shaped Your Incredibles Nut Rub Cologne gift set aimed at keeping his most prized possessions smelling fresh and moisturized. This box set includes three of their most popular scents, Forest and Fields, and Ocean and Air, along with a brand new limited edition scent, Drift and Dunes. And don't forget, no nasty sulfates and synthetic dyes. Your guys' meat kiwis are safe as the products are made with essential oils and plant extracts. The promotional price for this gift set is $45, and as a true crime real-time listener, you'll get an additional 20% off with promotional code REAL20. That's R-E-A-L 20. So head on over to ballwash.com and grab a package today that'll have him singing like the great James Brown. Papa's got a brand new bag. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. New Year's came and went, and the Lake family celebrated with friend and neighbor Otto Blakeney in their two-room cabin. It was winter, and a blanket of snow covered the ground. Nothing that outdoorsman and woodcutter Otto couldn't handle. Besides, Philip and Bertha Lake had two small children at home, 21-month-old Jack and 6-month-old Betty Ann, so it was easier for Otto to come to them. The day together ended, and Otto went home, and the Lake family continued on with their daily grind. The sun rose on Monday, January 6, 1936. Otto peered the bellowing smoke beyond the horizon, coming from the general direction of his friend and neighbor. This is episode 19 of True Crime Real Time, Extortion and Murder in the Backwoods, The Lake Family Story, and this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, 
are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. It was just after New Year's 1936. The first all-talking movie, Scrooge, had recently opened up in theaters in the general area and Mary McLeod Bethune, philanthropist, distinguished educator, and government consultant, founded the NCNW, the National Council of Negro Women, in the United States. This organization had at its core a mission to create and advance opportunities and quality of life for African-American women, their families, and their communities. But the residents in the backwoods of primitive New Brunswick, Canada, didn't think much on these matters. They were sometimes impoverished and living off the land where they lived, for the most part. Philip Blake was such a man, as was his friend and neighbor, Otto Blakeney. Both of them trappers, trying to trap the minks and foxes that flourished in the area. In the morning of the 6th, Otto headed out to see Philip to see if he was firing any better with his traps than he was, and maybe to see if he could get some provisions. Over the horizon towards the lake's cabin, he saw the rising smoke billowing in the distance. He waded through the snow towards the smoke, and as the woods opened to a clearing and emerged onto Ballast Pit Road, he was upset to see the blackened ruins of his friend's home. Otto thought for certain that his friend Philip would not let himself get caught in a fire in his home, and immediately thought there was something off with the entire situation. Otto started inspecting the scorched ruins and found the body of Philip Lake, laying on his back, partially cremated, burned on what was left of his iron bed frame, within the kitchen area where they usually slept. His clothes burned off his body except for a few buttons that melted into him. Otto turned the body over and discovered a small bullet wound in the back of Philip's head. Although distraught by this discovery, Otto frantically kept searching. There were three more members of the household to find, and maybe they were safe. He had found no other bodies in the fire-stricken cabin. What he did see was small footprints leading from the cabin area that looked as though they were made with bare feet. About nine feet away, he noticed spots of blood on the ground. A little further on, he found a baby bottle, its milk frozen within it. And about sixty feet from the burned cabin lay a body clothed in a thin night slip in a pool of blood and partially covered in a layer of snow from the snowfall during the night and early morning. This was Bertha, Philip's common-law wife. She had suffered a terrible wound from blunt force trauma to the right temple from a blunt weapon. Her arm was spread as though reaching out for her children. A little further on was little twenty-one-month-old Jackie, face down in the snow with no apparent injuries. It looked as though he had died from exposure. The overnight temperatures ranged from negative 15 to negative 30 degrees Celsius. That's 5 to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Otto continued his search, but he couldn't find six-month-old Betty Ann. Horrified, he ran about 3.2 kilometers or two miles to the home of another neighbor, Omar Lutz, who was the station agent for the Canadian National Railway, who then called the RCMP in Moncton, some 9 to 12 kilometers away. Omar Lutz, his nephew Carl Horseman, and Otto Blakeney returned to the crime scene and awaited the police officers. Omar Lutz and his family knew Philip, Bertha, and the kids well. Of the group of neighbors, Mrs. Lutz was the last to see Philip alive. He visited their home the morning of January 5th to pick up a bottle of medicine though Omar had picked up for him when he went into Moncton. Inspector John C. Burns, commander of the Moncton Post RCMP, arrived on scene with Sergeant Bedford Peters and Constables Ewing, Pettigrew, Fenwick, and Kent to start the investigation. There was no obvious motive for the murder of Philip Lake. He was well-liked and very sociable. Inspector John asked Otto and Omar if they knew a Marshall Ring. Both of them advised that they didn't. He went on to tell the men that Marshall Ring was Bertha's estranged husband. 
Bertha and Marshall had separated several years before when they were living in St. John, New Brunswick, and that Marshall had recently moved to Moncton and worked now at the Moncton Hotel. He also advised that Bertha had charged Marshall with non-support. Omar and Lutz were tasked with identifying the remains of Philip Blake. Although his remains were partially cremated, they were able to identify him by the two gold teeth in his upper jaw. His cause of death was later determined to be gunshot wound. A meticulous search of the runes was completed, but they could not find the body of six-month-old Betty Ann. Likewise, her body was not found in the search of the surrounding country. Sergeant Peters of the RCMP quickly identified two sets of footprints leading from the crime scene and then following along the ballast pit road, from there through the bushes towards the train tracks. The prints appeared to be those of two men, Seeing as they were a set of two and heading in a different direction than that of Otto, they quickly deduced that these were the prints of the murderers. Twenty-seven meters from the road, he found a worn, wool-lined leather mitten. They followed this trail, collecting clues along the way for three days in frigid temperatures. They followed foot tracks along the north shore of North River. Approximately 100 meters or yards from the cabin, the two sets of men's footprints were joined by a smaller pair, showing that a woman had waited there. Between 200 to 300 meters or yards on this path, just past North River Bridge, they came across several smaller oval-shaped prints in the snow just before the trail went on to the Canadian National Rail Tracks. Sergeant Peters concluded that these were from the butt of a rifle. A 22-gauge rifle was found in the snow along the railroad embankment. At some point along this trail, Sergeant Peters found a blood-stained bowie knife often used for hunting. A train had passed earlier that day and the prints on the tracks were subsequently wiped away, but given the general direction, they were able to pick them up again near Barry Mills Station. At this point they lost the trail as their footprints mixed in with others, but they were convinced that they were headed east towards Moncton. In the meantime, Omar Lutz informed the RCMP that a little after midnight on January 6th, his big police dog started barking and that he typically doesn't bark without cause. His wife had gotten up to check, but couldn't see anything amiss. The dog had continued to bark and growl for almost 15 minutes. Constable Ewing had finished taking photos of the crime scenes, and the bodies were removed and transported to Moncton, where Drs. Paul Melanson and A.R. Landry performed the autopsies. They concluded that Philip Blake's cause of death was due to a gunshot wound to the head, that Bertha's cause of death was a compound fracture of the skull and lacerations to the brain, and that Jackie Lake had died from exposure or hypothermia. Several people were questioned with regards to the deaths of the Lakes. The first person to be questioned was Bertha's estranged husband, Marshall. He had insisted that there was no issue between him and Bertha and that he had never even met Philip. Additionally, Marshall had an alibi. He had been working at the hotel in Moncton from 11 p.m. on January 5th to 4 a.m. on January 6th. They also questioned a local 18-year-old hunter named Earl O'Brien. He did confirm being in and around the lake cabin within the past few days. However, he had been at home all Sunday night. It would appear that the RCMP were able to confirm his alibi. During the interview, Earl O'Brien informed about other visitors to the lake cabin. He named Blakeney and Lutz, as well as Arthur and Francis Bannister. This was on the 2nd of January. Arthur, 19, and Francis, 15, were children of May Bannister, who lived on Barry Mills Road. Sergeant Peters then asked Otto about the Bannisters who visited with Philip Blake and family. 
Otto told Sergeant Peters that a few months ago Philip told him an odd situation where Arthur Bannister and his older brother Dan had visited one day and told Philip that, quote, they were after Betty Ann, end quote. But Phil took it as a joke and laughed about it. He would have never given up his daughter for adoption. Before visiting the Bannister home to interview Daniel, Arthur, and Francis, the RCMP investigated a little more on the family. They started speaking with and interviewing their neighbors. The neighbors had informed them that May Bannister, 43, had just had a baby girl, that she had gone off for several weeks in December and then returned on December 29th with the baby. She apparently was seen carrying an extremely swaddled baby through town. May Bannister had been separated from her husband for 10 years and had four children from the previous marriage, sons Daniel and Arthur and daughters Frances and Mary, Mary being her youngest at 13. Naturally, the police wanted to know who the father of this new baby was. The neighbors suggested they speak with Milton Trites, a second-hand dealer who lived close to the Bannister home. May Bannister had been his housekeeper until she went away to have the baby. When interviewing Milton Trites, he said that he and May had been intimate and that he was the father of her daughter. He told the RCMP that May approached him in November and advised him that she was pregnant and would be having the baby soon and that he had financed it. He had purchased a crib and stroller as well as giving May money every week for groceries. He said at first he kicked up a fit about having to buy a crib and stroller and about giving her money every week, but now he was really anxious to see his daughter. After she came back with the baby on the 29th of December, May wouldn't let Milton see his daughter Thera for two days. When he finally did see a glimpse of her, she was heavily swaddled lying in a crib asleep and looked just like a doll. He wanted to pick her up, but May wouldn't let him disturb the sleeping baby. He told the constables that he was telling May that they needed to christen the baby and then have a christening party. During the interview, Milton let slip up that Albert Powell had been visiting the Bannister house frequently. So Constables Ewing and Pettigrew then went to speak with Albert Powell, a freight clerk who did social work with the Salvation Army on the side. Albert said that he first got acquainted with the Bannisters in 1934 when he learned that they needed help. He had given money for groceries and to pay some bills, and since then he had stopped occasionally to see how they were doing. He said that he had recently been staying away from the Bannisters and the police as May was accusing him of having an affair with her 13-year-old daughter Mary, claiming that Mary was pregnant with Albert's child and that he would need to support the child, an accusation that he vehemently denied. He told her that if Mary was pregnant, he certainly wasn't the father, and he would be damned if he would pay. They asked him if he saw the new baby, and he replied with telling them both that no, he didn't, and he didn't think that there actually was even a baby. He believed that May was parading around town with a doll, and that she fooled Milton with it as she could get money out of him. During this interview with Albert Powell, they had also asked him if he recognized the Bowie knife. Albert had indicated that the Bowie knife might be the property of Arthur Bannister. Additionally, Another resident on Barry Mills Road identified the worn leather mitten as one that looked like a pair that he had seen Daniel Bannister wear. Sergeant Peters realized that this was only circumstantial evidence. Therefore, he arranged with Coroner Caldwell to have the bullet removed from Phillip Lake so that striations and caliber could be compared to a gun should one be located in order to identify the murder weapon and its owner. He then sent Constable Kent to check on the banisters to see what they had to say with regards to the found items being identified as belonging to them. When Constable Kent visited the family home, May Bannister was out with the scandal baby, but the four children were home. 
He said Daniel and Arthur were lazily sitting around while Mary, the 13-year-old, was making lunch, and Francis, the 15-year-old, was playing with a life-size baby doll. When questioned about the knife and mitten, both Daniel and Arthur confirmed these items to be theirs, but told Constable Kent that they had lost them in the woods around the 2nd of January when they went to visit the Lake family. Meanwhile, Inspector Bird had found out that May Bannister had applied for the adoption of a baby at the New Brunswick Protestant Orphans Home in St. John in February of 1935. Her daughter Frances completed the application on her behalf. Seeing that she had a hard time feeding the four kids that she had, he found it odd that she would want to have another child. She was unable to adopt a baby at this time. On the 9th of January, the RCMP went to the Bannister home. May Bannister refused to let them in or speak with them, and they didn't have a search warrant at this time, so they had to leave. They returned the next morning with a search warrant. The first thing they collected was a life-size doll. May Bannister also denied knowing the Lake family. While completing their search, they heard the sounds of a baby coming from another room. One of the police officers went into the other room and came back holding a baby girl. May insisted that this was her baby and that Milton Tripe was the father. However, it was identified that the baby was actually Betty Ann Lake due to a strawberry birthmark at the top of her forehead, which was identified by the midwife who assisted in her birth. May Bannister was arrested for kidnapping. Law enforcement theorized that on the night of January the 5th, Philip, Bertha, and the children were asleep. Someone entered the cabin and shot Philip in the bed while asleep. They grabbed Betty Ann. Bertha had awoken and grabbed her young son and tried running the two miles to the Lutes. Halfway there, she was overtaken and killed and the small boy was left there in the snow and freezing temperature to die. The house was set on fire to mask the murder of Philip Lake. Later in the day after the arrest of May Bannister, Sergeant Peters interviewed Frances Bannister, her 15-year-old daughter. Frances confessed that on January 2nd, she and Arthur went to the lake home to kidnap Betty Ann, but weren't able to as Earl O'Brien was hanging around the place, so they had to forego their plan. Then on Sunday, the 5th, they left the home again to proceed with their plan. Arthur left the home at 4 p.m. with a 22 gauge rifle, and that she and Daniel left the house at 8 p.m. Daniel had taken a large hunting knife. When they arrived at the lake cabin, Arthur had come out to meet them. He then went into the cabin. Frances said she heard a noise that sounded like a shot, and that shortly after he came out and handed her the baby. This was around midnight on the 6th. She said that she ran out to the road with Betty Ann while Arthur ran to the side of the house where the barn was to set fire to the house. While she was running, she also heard a woman scream. She had screamed for a while and then she suddenly stopped. She didn't look back. Shortly after that, the boys caught up with her and she turned and saw that the cabin was on fire. As they continued walking, they could hear the incessant barks of the Lutz dog. Arthur handed the rifle to Daniel and then carried Betty Ann the rest of the way. Near the railway embankment, Daniel broke the rifle and threw the parts into the bushes. She advised that they return home at 3.20 a.m. Arthur entered the home first with Betty Ann in his arms. Their mother was awake and took charge of the baby as soon as he walked through the door. Francis then accompanied the police to where the broken rifle was thrown and they recovered the additional pieces. To the shock of some nearby residents, Arthur and Daniel were arrested for the kidnapping of Betty Ann and the murders of the rest of the Lake family. 
Francis Bannister was ordered held as a material witness. This brings us to the end of part one of this tragedy, and I hope you'll join me next time for part two of Extortion and Murder in the Backwoods. In that episode, we'll cover the trials of May Bannister as well as Arthur and Daniel Bannister, and we'll also discuss the sentencing. And guys, I want to apologize because on the last episode, I said that today we'd be covering the homicide of Catherine Dow, who was a retired nurse who was murdered in her home, and her house was set on fire in December of 2000 in order to cover up the murder. Unfortunately, it just needs a lot more research, and I really couldn't do the case justice with the little bit of information that I was able to uncover as of yet, and that really won't help getting the word out there on her case. So I'm putting that one in my back pocket as I continue to do research, and I do plan on covering that still in an upcoming episode. And guys, I'm really excited to tell you, I'm publishing my very first episode on the Canadian Correctional System on Patreon, and research is underway on the second Patreon episode, which will cover the very last two people executed in Canada before capital punishment was abolished. If you want to listen to exclusive episodes, add free and early release episodes, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. There are several different options, ranging from armchair detective to co-producer. The link is in the description. I would also like to thank all of those of you who've taken the time to leave me a positive review. I really appreciate all of your support. Make sure you check us out at truecrimerealtimepod.com to read the true crime article on this episode, as well as see the accompanying photos. If you have questions, comments, or case suggestions... I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at truecrimerealtimepod at gmail.com or complete the case submission form on our website. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of True Crime Real Time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating and leave us a review. This will help our reach and bring more attention to the cases we cover. Thank you.